God, we love you, and we are so thankful for you and for who you are, for all that you've done, and uh, just even in, in our lives, God. God, as we think about all you've done in our lives, all we can do is just sit and be thankful, sit and be in awe of who you are. And so, God, this morning, would you just uh, continue to bless us with your presence? Would you, would you speak to us through your word, God? Would the words that come out of my mouth not be my words, but they may they be your words for your people? God, we are here to hear from you. God, we love you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in week three uh, today of our stories series, in which we have just been looking uh, at different stories in Scripture, different stories that we, can, that we can learn from. Maybe some familiar stories, maybe we'll get into some not familiar stories, uh, but I, I love talking about the stories in Scripture, because really, if you think about it, all of Scripture is a story. Right, we have a story from Genesis to Revelation that, that actually we play a part in. We, we, I've always kind of thought that there should just be a few blank pages in between Jude and Revelation just to remind us of where we are in God's story. Revelation has not yet happened. We are not there yet, but, but this, is, this is foretelling for us. And so where we play a part in this story of God, and the story of God is, is one of creation and and there's a fall in there. There's some crisis points in this story, but there is also a story of restoration and of reconciliation. And this is, this is God's story that he is telling in the world. And so, so to be able to, to really be able to tell this story, to know this story that we play a part in, I've just been kind of taking a look at some of the stories that we read about in Scripture. Some of them that maybe we, we look at and we think of as just... Uh, kids' stories sometimes. We think of, uh, like, in the, we've gone over Daniel and we've gone over Jonah so far. Those are stories that, that uh, I think most of us would say we teach those to our kids, and we, we, this, these are stories that we teach them to start to learn about God. But there's, there's some deeper meaning in there, even for us as adults. This, those stories are not just to teach our kids. They are for us as well. There, we have things to glean from each of these stories. And so, so far... Like I said, we've talked about Daniel, and we talked about just Daniel's ability to stand, to stand when it was hard, to stand when, when uh, it, was, it was difficult for him to stand up for what he believed in, but he, had, he knew what he was doing. Right? The king passes a law that you can't pray to anybody except for him for 30 days, and so what does Daniel do? He does exactly what he had been doing, and he goes up to his room, and he opens his window, and he begins to pray to the God that he knew. Now, he, he trusted God, but he stood up for what he believed in. It's about taking a stand for your faith. We learned that in Daniel. Last week, we looked at Jonah, and we looked at this whole idea of calling through the lens of this patriotic prophet named Jonah, who's, who's honestly, whose patriotism got in the way a little bit of, of like not wanting to go where God was calling him to go because those people should not be saved. Those, I would rather see these people die. He's, he's camping on a hill, mad that God is saving these people. Why? Because they're not like him. Right? But we, we learned about just calling. We, we look at this whole concept of calling in Jonah and understand that, that whenever we run, we can never really run from God. God will always find us. God will always be there. But we can run from the call of God, which is what we talked about last week. Running from 
the call of God. And last week, I, I, I just encourage you to be in prayer about what, what God was calling you to do. Is God, where is God calling you to go? And my encouragement was that your answer would be, yes, God, I will go. I, I will do what you're calling me to do. It wouldn't be a Jonah and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't agree with that. I'm not going to go that way. But just a yes. God, you're calling me. I will do it. We're going to sort of continue that, that train of thought this morning as we look at uh, another story in Scripture. Uh, this week we're going to take a, little, a look at a woman in Scripture who is a, who is a great example of this truth. That faith and risk are often intertwined. Faith and risk are often intertwined. I mean, when you, when you take a risk, when you step out in faith, God can do some amazing things on the other side of that. When, when we obey God's leading, it's amazing what falls into place. There was a quote that I read quite a while ago that just kind of stuck with me. It said, why not go out on a limb? That's where all the fruit is. Right? Why not go out on a limb? That's where all the fruit is. Why not take a risk? There, God is calling us sometimes to take risks. This image of risk is not, uh, not an unusual image for us. We, we know what risk means. We, we can understand this concept of risk. When we were growing up, uh, I loved to skateboard. Uh, in my third grade, fourth grade year of elementary school, I was a skateboarder. And there was a new park going up in Payson, Arizona, uh, where I lived at that point, and I was so excited for this park because they were building a half pipe at this park, and I was excited for this half pipe because I, I, I have watched the X Games. I know, I know, like, man, skateboarding can be so cool. Look at all the tricks these guys are doing. Have you, I don't know if you've ever seen on ESPN or something. They have this, they have this whole uh, thing called Big Air. It's skateboarding Big Air. And literally now, like if you watch today, I, I don't know if it's on today, but if you watch the X Games now, they're literally dropping in from like the upper deck of Staples Center and riding a skateboard down and getting a ramp to go off. They're, they're getting just ginormous air. This is, this is how far the, the sport has come. I love to skateboard. But I never went on any ramps. I loved to skateboard. And I remember the day, I, I remember the day when that park was finished and the half pipe opened. It wasn't a small half pipe, it was a pretty big half pipe. I climbed the ladder up to the top with my skateboard and I stood over that ledge. Skateboard and I was ready to go. I was one foot off the ledge and I couldn't do it. I took a step back, I climbed down the ladder and I never skateboarded again. It scared me that much to go on that half pipe. I was done. I never skateboarded. And still to this day, you give me a skateboard and there's like a little nerve that comes in, like it just creeps in and it's not rational. I know that. It's an irrational fear that I have, but it is there, right? We, we can understand, we can cognitively kind of understand this, this concept of fear. We know, we know what it is. I think the same is true. Well, let me keep going here. This, I was scared standing on top of that half pipe. I think what I didn't realize at that point and, and still kind of these guys that do this, these guys that are dropping in from the upper deck of Staples Center and going down and going super fast and super high, 
they didn't start on the giant ramps. Right? They didn't just wake up one day and say, yeah, you know what, I think I will. I think I will just put on a helmet and drop out of this upper deck of Staples Center. Yeah. I think that's not what they do. They start small. They start on these smaller ramps, and they get used to it. They get used to how the board feels under their feet when they're going down the ramp. They get used to how the board feels not under their feet when they're in the air. Right? They, they get used to all of this stuff. And, and so as they, as they continue to take risks on the smaller things, the bigger risks don't seem quite so big. And so they're able to do some amazing things. The, the, the tricks on a skateboard, you would think that there's only so many things that you can do on a skateboard, but every single year there are new tricks and there are new things coming out because people are overcoming fear of whatever they're afraid of, of if I do this, I might fall from 50 feet in the air with just knee pads and a helmet. If I do this, I, this isn't going to work. I don't know if I can spin that fast. I don't know if I can do this, but they overcome. I think you can look at our faith through the same lens that I see skateboarding through. See, God, God is calling us to maybe go over some, some ramps, to maybe drop in a small half pipe. But here's the thing. Fear is, I think, a great catalyst for faith. That as we, can, we, we understand God is calling me to do this. God is calling me to go there. I'm afraid, but I do it anyways. What happens is our faith grows exponentially as we overcome this fear. We like to think of our, our faith journey kind of just as a, <clears throat> if, if you were to graph it, you would just want it up and to the right. right? You just want kind of a solid line this is my faith journey. I've just been growing. This is not exactly how faith journeys typically go. It's not how mine went. I don't know if it's how yours went. I know Robert always says three steps forward, two steps back. Right, Robert? Amen. Amen. This is our faith journey. But we, as we come to these places where we're, we're afraid of doing what God is calling us to, but but we do it anyways, and we see how God moves, and we see how God works through that, we we end up taking those few steps forward. And even if we fall back a couple of steps, those, we know that we can get there again. We know that we can take this step again. We know that God might call us to this again, and we can, we can do it because look what God did the last time. Faith and risk are, are often intertwined. I mean, we see some people with, with just some unbelievable faith in Scripture and oftentimes what they have in common is they're, they're not afraid to risk something. We look at Peter in the New Testament walking on water. And t- think about the risk that goes into that. that. I know that Jesus is right there, so there's not, maybe not quite as much risk because, I mean, God is right here, right? So, but Peter, hey, Jesus, if it's you, would you just call me out to walk on this water? How does he get to that place? Well, he's, he's overcome some fears in his faith journey. Right? You, you look even, even in the Old Testament, you look at the book of Joshua and all of the things that Joshua does. Uh, he's overcoming fear. This is why in the very beginning of Joshua, three times in the first chapter, don't be afraid. Be bold. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fear and faith. Go together. And faith, or risk, I think, and fear is the catalyst 
for spiritual growth. Uh, the story I want to talk about this morning is the story of Esther. Esther is in the Old Testament there. If you want to, want to go to Esther, we'll, uh, we'll kind of go through Esther a little bit. It's right after Nehemiah, right before Job. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll hang out kind of an all over Esther. We're going to read chapter 4 and some other things. But I, I just want to give you some context of the book of Esther before we get going. Esther, really, here's why we're talking about this. Esther is a, is a woman who overcame fear. She overcame the fear that she had, and she did some amazing things. So here's some context. In, in, in Esther, we read about uh, a king. His name is King Xerxes. King Xerxes is kind of the, the big dog on the block, right? He is, he is the, the one. He has conquered the Babylonians. He has done some amazing things, uh, and he is not one to keep that quiet. Uh, he is one to share that. He is one to, to flaunt his wealth, to flaunt all of his achievements, uh, and at the very beginning of, of Esther chapter 1, we read about some of these accomplishments, and we read that for six months, he is displaying, for 180 days, he's displaying kind of the, the wealth that he has. And he ends this six months with a party, a seven-day party, a week-long party just to celebrate and to kind of show off all of his wealth. This is, where we, this is where we begin. He, he loved to do this. He loved to flaunt. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, we read about this, this party that he, that he started. When these days were over, talking about the 180 days that he displayed his wealth, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command... Each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti, his wife, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. This is a party. This is a large party. A come one, come all party. Don't need to bring anything because I've got it all. You don't need to bring anything. In fact, have whatever you want. Drink as much as you want. Do whatever you want. This is a full seven-day party, just really just to kind of show off how wealthy he is. And as we come, as we continue in this, and Xerxes, on the final party day, the, uh, this scripture is very nicely telling us that he's drunk. In the NIV, it says this, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, other, other translations say when his heart was happy from the wine. Right, this, is, this, is, this is King Xerxes. He is, he's, he's not all there right now. He calls his wife. He calls his wife in. Remember, she's at a different party. She's at a party for all the women. But he calls his wife in. And in verse 11, we hear why. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. For she was lovely to look at. 
Now there's a problem that comes here. Queen Vashti doesn't want to come. Queen Vashti is not going to play this game with King Xerxes. She's not just going to come and, and show off. She's not going to do this. And so she doesn't come. And she tells the servants who came to get her that she's not going to come. And they, so they go back and report to, a, a, at the very least, tipsy King Xerxes. And he is not happy. He's, he's angry with this. And so he, he has a meeting with some of his wise men. And they come up with, with this idea in, in chapter 1, verse 16. Then Memokan replied, In the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the, the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media that, which cannot be repealed that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. I mean, yeah. Basically, here's what happened. The king felt disrespected. And all of his wise men thought, we don't want our wives to do that either. So here's what we'll do. She's out. And let's find someone else who's better than her. Let's find another woman who is even lovelier to look at. Let's find another woman who fits this. Let's, let's find another because we cannot have this. And so they, they, they do. They, they make this edict. And so they, they, they say, all right, we'll, we'll, we will go out. We'll go throughout the kingdom. We will find the most beautiful women. We'll bring them in. We're going to give them the royal treatment. Uh, and the woman who pleases the king the most will take Queen Vashti's place. Enter Esther. Esther is a Jewish girl. Esther had been orphaned at an early age, and her uncle had adopted her and kind of, I don't know if it was officially adopted, but he had treated her as a daughter, Scripture says. She is taken by the king's men into the palace where she is given 12 months of beauty treatments. She's, she's, she's given all this, this royal treatment. And then she goes to see the king. And if, she's, if she pleases the king, then essentially what happens is you become one of the concubines. If, if she pleases the king, then she can take this place of Queen Vashti if she's like the top. And so we read in, in chapter 2 here, verse 17 and 18, we read what happened. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And so she had won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces, 
provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, every good story needs a crisis moment. This story's crisis moment comes when Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill King Xerxes in chapter 3. Now, this plot, come to find out, is true. And so the king finds the people who were to be responsible for this, takes them, kills them. Then Mordecai has a run-in with, with Xerxes' right-hand man named Haman. Haman really doesn't like Jewish people. And in fact, this run-in with Haman makes Haman so mad that he decides, instead of just, instead of just kind of ruining Mordecai's life, I'm just going to take out all of the Jewish people. Escalated quickly, right? But that's what happens. Instead of, instead of just, just ruining Mordecai's life, I'm going to take out all of the Jewish people. And so he comes up with this plot. He comes up with the plot to wipe out all of these people. And it's really genocide in its worst form. It's neighbors taking out neighbors and friends taking out friends just because of where they were born, just because of their nationality. Now, this is the plan that comes, and, and, and really the... Let me just kind of read this here. Chapter 3. <clears throat> this is Haman talking to King Xerxes. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king gives Haman his ring, gives him his blessing, says, don't worry about the money, just go for it. So you can understand, when we get to chapter 4, Mordecai, Esther's uncle slash father figure, is just weeping. He's scared. Because he knows that this edict, this edict has gone out and, and everyone knows this is what is going to happen. So Mordecai, we begin chapter 4, Mordecai is terrified. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned eunuchs assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back 
and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want you to notice here the two reactions that she has. And I want you to put yourself in in this place of being called to take a risk. Her first reaction is this. No, I can't. I mean, literally, I might die. If I go in there and he doesn't expend, extend the scepter, I'm, I'm going to die. So, so no. Being called by her uncle to say, you need to go and see the king and put a stop to this. If anybody's in a position to do this, it's you. I can't. I, I, I can't do it. Right, isn't this sometimes our reaction? When we're called to do something that seems a little risky. I know that sounds like the right thing to do. But I can't. I can't do it. And and it might not be in terms of death, obviously. It was for her. But we have this we have this idea that I just I, I can't. It's it's not my place. It's there are epidemics going on in our world, in our country. There's things like addiction and pornography that are easy to look at and see and to say, that's just, that's just too heavy. I'm out. I can't. I can't do anything about that. And so I'm not even, I'm not even going to try. Right? And so we just, we just kind of drop. I mean, how many of these Mordecai moments have we had in our lives? Where God is, is calling us to do something that just sounds flat out scary. It, it sounds like, I just don't know if this is going to work. I mean, how many of those moments have we had in our lives? Maybe it's a homeless man on the street and you just get that feeling. Or maybe you learn about a family that's struggling. Or maybe you learn about a school that is struggling and you just want to, you just feel like I, I should do something about that. But, but And oftentimes the I can't is really just a, I don't know how, and so I can't. I, I, I can't. I'm sure all of us have had many times where we've had that feeling. We're being called to something and just have to say, I can't. That answer probably, well, obviously, wasn't good enough for Mordecai. In fact, Mordecai had enough faith in God to say, if you don't do this, God will deliver us from somewhere else. But who knows? Maybe you've been put here just for such a time as this. 
I mean, think about the faith that had to come to say that. He's, he's in the streets, he's in the public mourning and tearing his clothes. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. And, and he has the faith as, as Esther sends back this note and just says, I can't, to be able to go back and say, look, if you don't, God will provide someone else. But maybe you've been put here for such a time as this. Here's the second reaction of, of Esther is, Okay, but I can't do this alone. I need you to fast with me. It was a yes, but I need other people with me. Yes, but I'm going to need some help. You go, you fast for three days and nights with everybody in the city. I will do the same, and then I will go in. Sometimes when we're, when we're going through something, there's that... Seems a little scary. Sometimes we just need a little help. Be able to talk about it with other people, have other people praying for us as we go through this. We were, we were never meant, you'll, you know this from when we talk about Connect, we were not meant to live this Christian life alone. We were not meant to grow and we were not meant to, to live out our faith alone. We were meant to do this alongside other believers and alongside other people, to have some, some accountability, to have some people who, who are behind us and who can lift us up and who can encourage us. And, and sometimes to be able to say yes, we need to be able to share what we're going through with other people, to have them pray for us, to have them encourage us, to say, hey, look, I'm going through a hard time right now. God is calling me to do something right now that I just don't know if I can do, but I know I need to say yes, and so will you pray for me? Will you walk through this with me? Will you go on this journey with me? Sometimes when we're going through something that's a little risky, we need that extra, that extra presence behind us. I mean, think about Moses. Moses, Moses God was calling him to go and, and to free his people. And Moses said, I don't know if I can do that by myself. God knew he was going to say that, and so I've already sent your brother Aaron. He's coming along with you. Sometimes when we're doing something that seems risky, seems a little scary, seems out of our comfort zone. We need other people behind us. This is where the church comes in. This is where the community of believers comes in, to be able to pray for each other and to encourage each other. This is what she needed. And so she does. She goes, she fasts for three days. We can assume that Mordecai and, and his group did it as well. And after the three days, she enters into the king's presence. And this is kind of like that, if this was a movie, this would be like the build-up point, right? She opens the door, can't really see what's inside, it's just light coming in, right? She's walking in slow motion. She goes in, and the king says, what do you want? But not in like, a, like we say to our kids when they're bugging us, like, what do you want? Like, a, I'll give you half my kingdom. What would you like? And this is like Esther's opportunity to do exactly what she's been brought there by God to do, to save her people, right? She's going to just, just ask him to say, look, this, this law is unfair. This is unjust. Like, why are you trying to wipe out my people? That's not what happens. She says, if it pleases the king, well, we'll start at chapter 5, verse 3. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. 
Verse 4, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. What? This Haman. Haman is the one who came up with this plan to wipe out all the Jewish people. Haman is the bad guy here. Why in the world is she inviting Haman to a banquet? Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied again, If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then the king and Haman, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I'll prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. It's one of these one of these stories where it's just kind of like that doesn't that doesn't necessarily fit. It doesn't sound right. Why would she just invite him to dinner? Why would she invite him to dinner twice, let alone once? All right, but but sometimes well, I won't go ahead. Here's here's what happens. In the waiting time, God works. In the waiting time of the story, God begins to move. Isn't that what happens all the time? We just feel like, man, God, why won't you do something now? Why can't you do something right now in this moment, in this instant? I need this right now. There's one of my, one of my favorite quotes is, is John Ortberg, and here's, here's what he says. He says, too often we are double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. I love that. Often, we are double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. We want things now. We want it here. We just want to feel the rush. (laughs) But God works in the waiting. And that's what happens here in this. God works in the waiting. After the banquet, they go out and Haman is, is with, or he sees Mordecai. And he just has this, this passionate anger against Mordecai. And so he has his people go and set up a stake, a 30-foot-high stake that, that, that Mordecai would be impaled on. He wanted Mordecai dead. And so they set it up, and, and they come back. They come back the next day. <clears throat> and in chapter 7... The king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. <clears throat> and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? <clears throat> Where is he, the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and he went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, or one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is not just the end of the story. This is, this is just the, this is, yeah, we'll keep going here. Because what happens is God moves through this. Remember that time that Mordecai saved you, king? They're going through the annals. They're going through the records. And, and the king is, is told, hey, remember that time that Mordecai saved your life? The king says, yeah, that's right. What, what did we do for that? Did we ever recognize him? No, we didn't. We should do that. We should recognize Mordecai. Oh, and Esther, what should we do for Esther? We give Esther all of Haman's everything. And by the way, let's cancel that edict that we had, and let's save the people. There's, there's, there's so much in this story. There's, there's just some amazing things in the story, but here's what happens. In a place where there was risk, someone stepped out in faith. <laughs> And good things happened. God things happened. And God's people were saved by a woman who was able to say, I trust you. I trust you, God, with my life. Even though this may cost me my life, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to go and visit the king. Because it's the right thing to do. Even though it's scary, I'm going to go. Even though it's risky, I'm going to go. Where is God calling you in your life to take a risk? To go out on a limb and to grab some fruit? Where is God calling you in your life to go out like I said, I'm building kind of on last week. We say yes to the calling of God, but we say yes to the calling of God even when it's risky, even when we're a little bit scared, even when it might not make sense because God is calling us to do it. Where have you been put for such a time as this? Where have you been put where God is calling you to do some things in your life? Where have you been put where God is calling you to do some, some risky, scary things. My prayer for you this week is that you would take that risk and that you would say yes. And that as you say yes, and as you follow God's lead in your life, as you, as you take this risk and go where God is calling you to go, that your faith would just, just explode. That you would grow in your faith, that this risk, that this Fear would be a catalyst for your faith for years and days to come. 
Where is God calling you to go? Where is God calling you to risk? How is God calling you to act? And let's go. Let's do it. Let's act. Let's move on it. Let's take a risk. And let's let God work it out. That's what he's calling us to do. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we are just thankful for everything that you give us, everything that you bless us with. God, we're thankful that we have the breath to breathe, the breath in our lungs to come into this place, to be able to sing your praises, to be able to, to open up your word and be able to understand what you're saying, to be able to, to hear words from you, God. Would these words just settle on our hearts today? And as we think about where you're calling us to go in our lives and, and maybe a risk that you're, that you're calling us to take, would we not be afraid? But would we know that you are there and that if you are calling us to go, that it will be fruitful? God, help us not stand on top of that ramp and just let fear overcome us. God, we love you. We give you praise in this place. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? And as we go, just... Uh, just hold your hands and just receive this blessing from God. May our mighty God, our strong God, our all-powerful God, comfort you this week as he calls you to risk and he calls you to go out and, and do something that might be scary. May he remind you along the way that he is with you and that he will never forsake you. And as you take this risk, would you go out and make a difference in your community, wherever you may find yourself. Go in the peace and the love of a powerful God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.